And good morning from the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And you might have noticed if you were listening to Pat's program just a moment ago that uh, he was playing some music off a spinning disc off the old-fashioned vinyl records, which is pretty cool. They're making a bit of a resurgence these days, and it's kind of handy because one of our themes today on Fuzzy Logic, we're going to be talking about spinning. <laughs> and in the studio with me is Dr. Ian MacDonald. Morning, morning, Rod. Morning, Ian. And we're going to be talking about some of Ian's research today on how you manage wildlife populations, which is a bit of a thorny issue, uh, especially around Canberra at the moment, if we're talking about kangaroos. And uh, we'll bring that to you later in the program. Now, each week in the Canberra Times and Fairfax Media, we have our Ask Fuzzy column. And you can send us your questions to askfuzzy at zoho.com. And today's Ask Fuzzy is on a question of snakes, big snakes, and <laughs> like really big snakes. Yeah, so you had a reader ask you what was the largest snake ever. So that's, you know, um, in, in the history of what we know on all of the world. Um, and we got Phil Hoare, who's from the National, Do- um, National Dinosaur Museum in Canberra, who's education manager there, to answer this question. And it turns out, in short, um, that it's a 13-metre-long, 1,100-kilogram predator um, hunted in a world recovering from the extinction of the dinosaurs. So it goes all the way back to when dinosaurs first existed. So 11,000 kilograms, that's probably the weight of a... Of a small vehicle. That is uh, one big ass snake. Yeah. So if you think about the the biggest snake oh, that we can think of in in the currently, which would probably be something like a, a scrub python or or a boa, you know those big snakes that you see at um at zoos. Um, are we probably talking five to ten times bigger? Than one of them, maybe. Well, 1,100 kilos. Yeah. This bloke is a big boy. And you've seen those pictures of, of goats and stuff being swallowed by <laughs> a, a snake. And what's mm. the, the pressure it can uh, exert? Was well, something like uh, the, the number there, Ian, is like 4,000 kilos or something. It's like massive amount of squeeze. Yeah. And, and Phil says it's like being crushed by the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, so uh, just reading here as well, it says that the biggest currently in the world is the um, reticulated python, yep. which is 150 kilograms or so. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about 10 times bigger than one of those big snakes that requires about 10 people to carry it anyway. So, yeah, this would require about 100 people <laughs> to try and pick it up. Hey, don't <laughs> argue with my snake, man, because <laughs> it's got an attitude. Uh, w- one of the things that uh, I, w- I want to get Phil to uh, talk about, and, and we're going to get Phil on Fuzzy Logic, and he's a great character, and he's a prolific writer as well, I've, I've discovered. Uh, are dinosaurs necessarily really big? Because that's sort of like the popular conception, you know, you've got the Apatosaurus, the T-Rex and those huge Mm. things lumbering across the landscape, chewing anything in its path. But I'm fairly sure that a lot of dinosaurs are actually quite small or Mm medium-sized. But uh, when when we get Phil on air, we'll uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. What what was it that made dinosaurs? Rod, that would not make a good Hollywood movie. (laughs) 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 <laughs> yes, I, I, and I understand that the um, 
the name of the dinosaur in the original Jurassic Park, the Velociraptor, yeah. actually is wrong. That the Velociraptor was actually quite a diminutive, much less fearsome thing, and that the real name of that one is something I can't remember at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. And there's there's a couple actually in um in Jurassic Park that have been proven to either not exist or just their species have been re-identified as something different. So it's interesting. Is uh is Hollywood kind of taking over science a little bit? Maybe that's a whole other question that we could think about. Well, um, <laughs> uh, com- comrade uh, Jared, who is doing his PhD on this very question mm, about the, play, the role of stories in telling science. Yes. And yeah. in particular, he's been looking at... He was telling us about it at the pub. Uh, all, yeah. all, all good stories uh, begin mm. at the pub. Uh, over a healthy beer. Over a healthy beer, <laughs> yeah. Uh, life uh, enforcing vo- vital beer and good, <laughs> and good conversation. But he was talking about do people really care about the accuracy of the science in the stories that they watch? Mm. And, uh, and so he's partway through that research and we look forward to, to finding out what he learns from that. Yeah, that will be really interesting. Mm. Now... Oh, do we have anything else about the snake? No, just basically if you've got the Canberra Times in front of you, it's on page 26 of the Canberra Times. It's a really interesting one this week, and we know that many people out there, and probably a lot of our listeners are interested in in reptiles, so this is a nice ask fuzzy about what is the, the largest ever snake that's been recorded in the history of time, so it's a really interesting one. So thanks to Phil for, for writing that one yeah, for Phil us. Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum, which is a great visit, and I was out there oh, a few months ago interviewing him and John Pickerel who wrote the book called Flying Dinosaurs and John is the editor of Australian Geographic and his book is about how dinosaurs didn't really die out, they became birds in fact the birds are really a kind of dinosaur so that's interesting and we talked about the colour of dinosaurs so you know, the popular conception of a dinosaur is some dull green, grey, brown thing, but they were probably all sorts of vibrant colours, just like, well, birds often yeah. are. Yeah, interesting. Now, Ian, this kind of gets into uh, the question of the origin of life, and last week we had a very lively conversation with Dr Charlie Lineweaver and Eleanor, and we talked about how life evolved from chemical soup uh, mm-hmm. And it was pretty. It was pretty interesting. But uh, I met uh, a, a guy this week, uh, Pete. G'day, Pete. He's uh, sells a big issue down here in Canberra, and uh, always have a good chat to Peter. And we were talking about evolution, and as I was doing a little bit of thinking about how long we've had for life to evolve to the state that it, we currently see today, right? And it's about 3.8 billion years. So when I say the word billion, that lasts for about a second, right? It's not very long. And it's really hard to get your head mm. around just how big a number a billion is. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I did a little bit of uh, looking for an analogy. And if you take one step, like a stride, and you step one metre, that's a big step, Right. Uh, and you were to walk from the planet Earth, where would 3.8 billion steps, or if you want to take to the origin of the Earth, 4.6 billion years ago, mm-hmm. if you were to start walking, where would you end up with that many steps for one, one step for each year? 
And the answer is you would be around about Pluto. And Pluto is, uh, I mean, it depends on which side of the sun you're on. So if we're on the same side of the sun, we're closer. And if we're on opposite sides, we're further away. But it's anywhere between 4.2 and 7.5 billion kilometres away. Wow. <laughs> and so if you were to do the, do the sums, multiply that by, say, a thousand one-metre steps, uh, and just kind of imagine how long it would take you to walk that distance to Pluto. So it's a long way. I can't even get my head around that. Even that analogy does is a bit stretching. But the, the, the point is, we're talking about a really long time. Yeah. And so there is an enormous amount of time for life to evolve and for the tiny incremental steps. So one of the things that Peter was saying was, how do we get from, say, a trilobite to something as complicated as a human? Mm-hmm. And, you know, is, is it a random process, you know, random selection? Yeah. What, what, uh, what Charlie was saying last week is what we call random actually isn't really random in the, in the sense it's random, but it's within the confines of a, of a... So if I were to take a random step in this room, in the studio here, I would be a metre away, but I could be in any given direction, but I can only be a metre away. So th- there's a limit to what... Random doesn't mean infinite. Hmm. So the process of evolution is not really random in the way people think random means. So I've also had this um, conversation, an ongoing discussion with a a regular correspondent to the Ask Fuzzy, and she's a biblical creationist. Now, I don't ever want to challenge a person's religious belief. I think your religious perspective is a very personal thing, and I wouldn't want to change that to another person I think to me I don't want someone telling me and I wouldn't tell another person what what their religious perspective should be but I'm asking her about uh, Mount Everest because in in the biblical creation story uh, all the fossils and everything were all built during the great flood Noah and so you know the story Mm -hmm. so I'm saying um, do you know how tall Mount Everest is off the surface of the planet. It's 8.8 kilometres. All right, so just imagine looking up into the sky, yep. almost nine kilometres, and at the top of Mount Everest, limestone and trilobite fossils. So to build Mount Everest in a flood, you've got to convert the sediments, the coral reefs, and so on, into limestone, and you've got to fossilise it. And how are you going to get a flood that's going to do that? But anyway, uh, Ian, you're a, you're, a, you're a science communicator. I mean, um, is it the wrong approach to try to use scientific reasoning in this sort of discussion? Because I think that the, the system of logic we're using doesn't necessarily work with someone who wants to see the world through the prism of, say, a biblical text. Yeah, I mean, as a science communicator, you kind of want evidence to back up your claims, Um, and I don't really have a a great opinion about this sort of issue. Um, But, yeah, I, I think, like, what you're suggesting is, well... If there was a a big flood, then where is the evidence to show that 
that happened and and how did it all create the world basically mm. um and you know there is actually some evidence to show that there was some sort of a flood back in the day a, a big one um but was it a part of evolution do we actually know that well it, wasn't, sure. it wasn't a global scale flood right mm. so there are plenty of stories the geological stories i think there was one uh, around the what is now the Dead Sea, not the Dead Sea, the Black Sea, that sort of region somewhere, mm. where there was like a, um, in geological history there was like a, a dam, you know, there was like a, a, a structure or like a, a mountain range or something like that, and then the water broke through quite rapidly and it inundated the surrounding area quite very suddenly. Mm. Uh, but that's like that's pretty big if you happen to be around it, but it's not a not a planetary yeah scale thing. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I talked about with Pete and g'day Pete uh, well, and I've got a couple of songs for you too by the way coming up because Pete you did ask for some <laughs> and I went and got them for you uh, we talked about the, how uh, planets rotate around the sun and it was a really interesting uh, conversation and so I did a bit of a research about that and, and Peter was saying that if the earth didn't have the gravity of the sun pulling on it it would just keep shooting off in a straight line. And then he was exactly right. And the velocity of the Earth around the sun is 29.8 kilometres every second. So we would, we would just go whoop, off mm. in space in a, in a straight line if gravity wasn't pulling us in. Mm. Uh, and to, to give that a kind of a perspective, it takes about seven minutes for us to move one diameter of the Earth. Uh, or we would go to the distance from here to the moon in about three and a half hours. Hmm. Now, the sun itself is orbiting around the galactic centre, so it's got its own velocity, yep. and it's travelling at 720,000 kilometres per hour. So that's interesting. Mm. But uh, now we, we, we've got an Ask Fuzzy, I've got an Ask Fuzzy due, and we're going to have to write one. Yep. And I wanted to go on to the theme of spinning, because these are all examples of things that spin. So the solar system spins, the Earth spins, the Moon spins, uh, always facing one side to the Earth. Yep. And everything seems to spin. And, and today is a blustery, really howling wind outside. You can see plenty of examples of things spinning leaves the, the vortexes the the wind curls around an obstacle and it creates a big eddy and that's mm -hmm. spinning the uh universe spins as i said pull the plug out of the bathtub that will spin yep you have a couple of skaters fly towards each other they link arms and what are they going to do spin they're going <laughs> to they're spinning yeah and so it's a really fundamental physical force in mm. in in the way the universe works so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk a little bit on, on that theme about spinning. So check out next weekend's Ask Fuzzy. And uh, we always have lots of fun. Don't forget to send your questions to askfuzzy at zoho.com. I think we might go on to uh, a track. And this one's for you, Peter. And this is The Devil Went Down to Georgia, so we believe, according to the story. And this particular track is... Um, one guy plays the whole thing entirely himself and the tale of when the devil went down to Georgia
Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sawed on the fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. But I'm a fiddle player too And if you'd care to take a dare I'd make a bet with you Now you play pretty good fiddle boy But give the devil his due A bit of fiddle of gold against your soul Cause I think I'm better than you My name's Johnny And it might be a sin But I'll take your bet you're gonna regret Cause the best there's ever been Johnny rising up your bow And play your fiddle hard Cause hell's both loose in Georgia And the devil deals the cards and if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. The devil opened up his case and he said, I'll start this show. And a fire flew from his fingertips as he rosin up his bow. And he pulled that bow across the strings and it made an evil hit. And a band of demons joined in and sounded something like this. Pretty good old son, but sit down in that chair right there and let me show you how it's done. Bow, bow, run, boys, run. The house of the rising sun. The bread pan packing no dough. Rain is dark by no time. Is that all you got? To which John replied, and the Lord I abide, son, I've only begun. The devil bowed his head because he knew that he'd been beat. And he laid that golden fiddle on the ground at Johnny's feet. Then Johnny said, Devil, just come on back if you ever want to try again. Cause I told you once, you son of a gun, I'm the best there's ever been. He played. Mountain, run, boys, run. This is the house of the rising sun. The brand pan pecking no dough. Branches are dark by no town, no. The devil went down to Georgia. And what did he do when he went there? He listened to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on 2XX. Uh, and you can download us off our uh, podcast. You can listen to us streaming online. 
And you can listen to us through that old-fashioned thing called the wireless. Mm. Here we are. But we are global, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Now, uh, I think that it's, uh, it's fairly safe to say that none of us like to see animals suffer. Uh, it's pretty basic instinct in humans that uh, we don't like to see other humans and we don't like to see animals suffering. But what happens when we build a city and we enclose a free-ranging animal for example, a kangaroo, and we put fences around it, roads, houses, shops, and what used to be an animal that could range over t tens or maybe, I don't know, hundreds, possibly kilometres, uh, what happens when you, when you do that to them? Well, their population goes up, oh, and you take away the natural predators like dingoes. Now, uh, in the studio with me, uh, Dr. Uh, Ian McDonald, who's our fuzzy logic, well, one of our fuzzy team, his research is actually on the question of how to manage wildlife populations. Now, it would be really good if you could give them a pill and they would just slow their reproduction down. So, Ian, in 2012, you did a PhD on exactly this question. Can you describe a little bit about what that was? Yeah, well, it's always topical at this time of year, I suppose. And, and my research didn't just focus on, on kangaroo management, but just wildlife management in general. And essentially, it was asking the question, can we manage wildlife and overabundant wildlife through their fertility and there's an area out there which most um, a lot of people know about it's called fertility control um, and a lot of us would know about the word contraception and what that means particularly for humans but what does that mean for animals um, and you know it's it's a bit silly to say that we can do the the same things for animals that we can for humans but i was working on a specific type of fertility control that was called immunocontraception and that's it's kind of a, a word that's out there but what it essentially means that if you separate those two words you've got contraception which means that when the animals do mate they will hopefully um not mate in a way that that means that they're going to produce offspring and the Im immuno part which is basically um our immune system means that we're actually trying to produce antibodies against a hormone which is important for reproduction so to put that all into an easy perspective what i was trying to do was to inject something into an animal that would produce antibodies against a reproductive hormone that both males and females have and when the antibodies attach to that hormone it actually renders it non-functioning right and then basically that non-functioning hormone then actually downstream means that the things like your testicles and ovaries will be non-functioning and we have an infertile animal which would be a, a nice humane way so that they don't reproduce at the same rate and we don't need to cull them and so on. Um, yeah. So can I just... just the, the, so the mechanism is using the immune response, right? To, That's right, yeah. yeah. We, so just to contrast that with human contraception, that works on manipulating the woman's hormone cycles. So... It, that, that's right. So the yeah. So there's there's a human pill available, um, which does stop the, the well, does sort of um, manipulate the way that the hormones are functioning. Yeah. Um, in this case, yeah, immunocontraception is specifically producing antibodies uh, against a hormone, yep. um, 
So it's not really manipulating the, the reproductive system in any way. It's just actually it's more having a, a role in the immune system. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually if you produce enough antibodies to stop this hormone from... Um, from functioning it's it's eventually going to stop functioning at all um but it's interesting that you do use the word humane as a, as a humane way of, of managing wildlife because that is actually kind of questionable um it's essentially the similar to um a surgical sterilization so you could you're uh, removing the the reproductive organs from an animal that they do actually require to display what we might consider normal behaviors so if we're actually changing an animal in a way so it's no longer displaying its normal behaviours, is that humane? And that's kind of, these are the ethical questions that we come up against when we're, we're comparing this stuff to culling or to lethal injection or to poisons. Um, yeah, is it actually a more humane way of doing things if we're actually changing the behaviour of an animal? That's a that's a really interesting thought, and I had I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I wonder. No, I, I hesitate to use this uh, analogy, but I'm going to anyway. Mm -hmm. um, for executions in the U.S., they use lethal injections, you know, and it, and it feels, you know, less violent, like. They, in, in in Indonesia, they executed the two Australians mm. by shooting them, right? Yes. And but that's that's violent, and it seems really nasty. But it's extremely effective and very short. And when you hear some of the botched things that have happened with the lethal injections in the US, uh, and, and and you're putting you're putting the medical people on the spot to do that. I wonder. I don't. I really strongly oppose to capital punishment. I've got to say, but if you're going to kill a human, you the quickest way to do it is probably with a bullet. <laughs> and that's really distasteful. Actually, I really don't even like saying that. Mm. But uh, I, but your point is really interesting. So you are meddling with the animal's biology, and you imply that it affects their their social functioning because. Yeah, well, I actually looked into this back in, oh gosh, all the way back in 2007. Um, I actually did a project. Uh, it was a small scale project where there was a bunch of kangaroos on a golf course, a nice golf course on the Gold Coast, um, a private golf course. And this golf course, um, the, the management wasn't going to, to cull the kangaroos or shoot the kangaroos in any way. Um, and they wanted to manage the, this population through fertility control. So they actually um, surgically sterilized and implanted females um, so to, to manage this population through their fertility. Um, and sure, that, that is effective um, as a long-term management goal. Um, but yeah, what I actually wanted to look at was what were the effects on, on the behavior of this social population of animals. Um, and so let's say you're completely removing the testicles from a male, which sounds a bit gruesome, but what you're actually doing is you're removing testosterone from that male. And, and what does testosterone, what, what sort of impact does that have on our behavior? And it actually plays a role in both sexual behavior and, um, and what we call agonistic behavior or aggressive behavior. Um, so it could actually, you know, stop these animals from fighting 
um, stop them from wanting to, to mate other females so is that a bad thing or that's that's a question we can't really answer can we um but it is stopping this this these animals from displaying their their normal behaviors but this was a very short-term project so so, um we only really looked at the population over a six-month period so we can't be a hundred percent sure as to whether this was happening as a long-term thing um but yeah if, if you're removing removing testosterone from a male um it's going to probably have an impact and if we want to really look into it a good way of of describing this to the public is well why do we get um dogs and cats desexed and that's a thing that's you know quite common when we get a pet dog um i got my dog desexed when it was a little puppy and our male dog too yeah so is that because we know that those dogs are are going to go out there and we don't want them to to mate with other dogs well that's one of the reasons um and that's definitely a reason we do it in cats but actually a lot of people do it in in dogs as well to actually slow down their behavior um they're supposedly you know going to to be a little bit less rowdy if we remove that hormone that, from that, them. that, that is really interesting point what, what, what you're telling me here is that the story is never as simple as it seems up front there's always a nuance to things I yep. mean, you don't have to overthink it but things the world isn't ne- really a simple place uh, but just on the uh, desexing of dogs, we've got a, a border terrier, and uh, he is a terrier, right? And a beautiful <laughs> dog, and really good with people, and really good natured. But get him near another dog, and he's a terrier, right? He just, we've got to keep him away because he's real bolshy little yep. little bastard. Uh, but uh, I wonder what he'd be like if we left his nuts intact. But uh, <laughs> would it be worse? Yeah. Well, he 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 would be more aggressive still. I would would I would say because you know as you're saying, taking the testosterone out of a kangaroo, it's going to affect him. So let, let's go back to your research. Yeah. So I I, I was uh, reading as much as a non-expert can read a PhD thesis last night. And uh, yep. so what what you did was you took what they call uh, animal models so you use rats and mice and then you try to deliver these various compounds to to, to tell us but that can be too technical essentially what we found and, and what a couple of my friends found as well with their phds is that this stuff works if we can inject it into an animal right so like i said it's like a vaccination um, how many vaccinations out there do we actually take orally? Not many, but we get a lot injected. But when we're talking about wildlife, is it feasible to be able to say if we want to manage a population on a large scale to inject every single one of these animals with the vaccination? That essentially is going to stop their fertility. And I was basically suggesting that, no, it's not really feasible unless you did have a really large amount of money and then even so, you've still got to be able to um, to be able to capture these animals in a way that isn't going that's going to be humane. Well, that is going to be traumatic, isn't it? So there was this uh, episode a couple of years ago out at uh, Belconnen, you know, and they herded these poor animals and they darted them and then they killed them. 
and that would have been quite traumatic for them. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't here when that one happened, but um yeah, I'm not too too sure. Yeah. What so happened there. so you yeah. were hoping to find an oral contraceptive and, and Yeah, so essentially like I was saying long-winded way of getting around this is that we were trying to see if we could orally deliver this yeah. vaccination. Um so what does that mean? We have to get it through the stomach. So I actually ask you um a good way that I'd tell this uh, this sort of process to, to people out there, to our listeners, is can you tell me a current vaccination that you take that's an oral vaccination? Not that many. Uh, I think the polio vaccination yeah, was which, with a sugar syrup or something, I think. But most things are injected, aren't they? Yeah, so that's, that's exactly right. There aren't many. I think worldwide there are about 10 to 12 oral vaccinations and i can't name them all off the top of my head um so we actually had to look at a way of developing this vaccination so it would make it through the stomach into the um small intestine and then into the immune system and this was the really difficult part of of the phd can we actually get a vaccination through the stomach when the stomach is designed to break everything down that enters it yeah that's exactly what i was going to say that you've got on one hand a, a stomach which is like you say it's designed to break down organic compounds uh and, but this compound can't and it must be biologically active yep it's got to have an effect so yeah, and so what was your result? So I did. A, I, I got to do a couple of actually really interesting studies where we looked at not necessarily. We even went back a step. So we didn't obviously just go. Well, let's let's give the vaccination that we gave as an injection, and we'll just give it um, orally to them. No, we can't do that. We have to actually redesign the vaccination. So we went back all the way to the beginning, and we looked at ways of protecting the molecule that we wanted to give. Um, and we use something that's called a nanoparticle. And a lot of people might have, have heard of that term before. Nanotechnology was, was quite a sexy term a couple of years back and still is. Um, so we essentially encapsulated the vaccination in little nanoparticles. And we wanted to see if it was going to make it through the stomach. But instead of putting the vaccine into these nanoparticles, what we actually put in there was um, little fluorescent particles so what we could see is um, when we put the, basically gave this, vac oh, well, I won't call it a vaccination anymore, gave this, um, I guess, solution orally, we could actually see it fluoresce in the stomach and in the small intestine and see where it was going. Um, and from that study, we could actually see that it was making it into the parts of the immune system where an immune response could actually happen. What we didn't know from this study was, was it in amounts that are actually high enough to have an immune response? So we could see that the particles were making it through the stomach into where we needed it to go. Does that actually mean it's an immune response? So we had to go to the so next step and keep and keep going and it, try and figure this all out. It's a, it's a difficult difficult problem. And mm. my take from what you've told me and what you is that you didn't really find a successful way of doing it. No. So I did my PhD for for four years, um, and the end result from my PhD, which was in 2012, and they I think have a few new results since then. Um, was that, yeah, my end result was we couldn't get it to work um, as an oral vaccine. Um, 
but yeah they're, they're still working on it um but then you've got the whole other issue of there's probably people thinking out there as well so then how do you deliver it to a kangaroo uh, i was going to get to that but before i we, we go on to that i just wanted to say something about the method of science right so as i read it your research essentially was a negative result Mm. And sometimes a negative result is what you need in science. You, you know, you don't always want to have the breakthrough. What you've done is you said this pathway that you explored didn't lead to the outcome we looked for. So we now know that a, a, a variation or some different approach is required. That's pretty important because isn't it the, the pressure is to say, I did find, I mean, I'm sure you would very much have liked to have gone, yes, that works. Yeah. Absolutely. But, but, but it but didn't happen. A result in science is a result. Um, it's harder to publish a result if it's a negative result. Yeah. Um, but it's actually more important in a way because then you want someone to either not waste their time trying to replicate what you've done or you want someone to, it could be us as well, to modify the study to see if we can get a better result. Um, and that's what's really important about science is that we actually do all work together and publish our results and get them out there so we can actually, someone can find a better way of doing things. Well, uh, it, what, what an important topic, Ian. And here on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking kangaroos. Uh, how do we, oh, and not just kangaroos, wildlife populations, we might uh, break to track. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that because I'd like to know how you get these things into the kangaroo, assuming you'd manage to make it work. Here on Fuzzy Logic. Oh, a bit of a uh, lively Sunday music there for you. And uh, hi, Mum. And hello to all the mums out there and all the people who have got mums. Yeah, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. I don't send mum anything, but I do ring up and say, Mum, good on you. Uh, now let's, uh, let's go on with our uh, kangaroo and our animal control, population control conversation here with Dr Ian MacDonald, who did his PhD on this very topic. And uh, before that song, Not Metallica, uh, we were talking about a chemical that's going to control the reproduction of the animals and how do you deliver it to them if it's an oral so you're not going to stick out your hand and write, walk around every day feeding this stuff uh, you've got to somehow get it so that they're going to ingest it they're going to swallow it how, how would that work Ian? Yeah that's something that I never um, got into within my PhD research which was unfortunate. It would have been cool to be able to test all those sorts of theories. Let's say the obvious example for, Car uh, for Canberra is, is uh, let's say we're trying to manage a kangaroo. Um, it would have to be something that first of all the kangaroo would want to eat but then it would also have to be something that other animals would not want to eat. So you wouldn't want it to be accessible for birds. Canberra's got quite a large bird population as well. Um, Canberra's also trying to um, to like recreate other species and, and, uh, and other been, endangered and, species. And you did a report from Mulligan's Flats, so we're, we're yeah. trying to conserve our what's left of our native fauna. That's right. You couldn't put it out into Mulligan's Flat because of all the, you know... Um, Betongs and and things animals like that that they have out there that they're trying to expand the population of and not control them. So this is a really tough issue. Um, I noticed just recently it was reported um, in in the Canberra media that the current fertility control project that they're doing in Canberra as a as a trial um, 
with an immunocontraceptive vaccine. They're, they're looking at delivering it via a dart gun. So instead of actually getting the kangaroo to eat something, they will actually shoot the kangaroo with an injectable yeah, um, yeah. vaccine. And there has been a multitude of, of studies where that has been effective. Um, some of the coolest studies have actually been overseas in South Africa, where they've actually tried to do this very thing to elephants. Uh -huh. um, and they got to, people got to go up in helicopters and inject elephants with um, with these sorts of vaccines and control elephant populations. Well, you think you've got a problem with the kangaroos? Imagine uh, <laughs> rampant elephants. Crikey. And uh, in some places in Africa, b baboons. And Absolutely. They're highly yeah. intelligent animals. And I've seen footage of these characters climbing over tables and up uh, into the up into the windows of hotel rooms and stuff like that, just yeah. rampaging. This know. is a, this is a global issue, and this is a very emotive issue as well. So in Australia, it's emotive around kangaroos, and we're saying that we don't want to kill kangaroos, we don't want to cull them. So what can we do? In Africa, it's around elephants. Um, it's the same issue. They have a massive elephant problem. Which, which rarely makes it into the media in Australia. Um, but oh, it's the same issue. They can't go around killing elephants because that would be very, very emotive. So how do they control elephant populations? There's even some areas of Africa where lions are overabundant. And same issue, they, they don't want to cull the lions. So what can they do? They use fertility control. Um, in America, it's deers. Um, so deer is kind of the equivalent to kangaroos over here. Could you imagine hitting a deer with your vehicle? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, I was down in the uh, remote Victorian uh, forest a few weeks ago, and I was on my motorbike, and I saw this black bum sort of wobbling its way around the corner ahead of me, and I eventually caught up. There were two deer. So we have a native uh, wild deer population. They're not, not not native, sorry. We have a wild deer. Absolutely. We have a wild deer population. And yeah. the biggie, and it's also been in the media, horses up in the snow mountains. Oh, Huge yeah. damage these animals are causing. And much as we love horses, uh, yeah. they are doing incredibly destructive and absolutely, and this is where um, emotions do get highly involved because people love horses, people love kangaroos. So, yeah, culling is just not an option. And, you know, in a lot of ways, should it be considered an option? Well, yeah. um, uh, you know, if we're talking about the lesser of evils, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to say it, but really, if we're going to bottle up an animal or we're going to put a, either a native or a... a a foreign animal into an environment and it's going to do such damage you know our options are limited a translocation is one we haven't heard of Ian but I believe that the the mortality rate of when you move kangaroos is yeah there's not there's not much the unfortunate thing here is that there's not much research done in in the area of translocation and when we're talking about kangaroos um, the obvious question is well where do we put them um, you know, kangaroos, like a lot of animals, have home ranges, have um, social groups and things like that. So where do we put them uh, is the first question. And then how do we do it is the second question. And um, I have been involved with projects where um, I have seen kangaroos um, being moved from one area to another area. And um, the kangaroos not do not necessarily react well to being um 
anaesthetise and then waking up in, in a different location. Um, and there's a big issue with kangaroos, which is actually also common in zoos, which is something called capture myopathy. Have you ever heard of that before? Uh, not that particular term. I have heard of things where the behaviour of the animal shows they're in distress, so like they're pacing up and down. Is yeah, that the sort of So thing? capture myopathy is actually a physiological term where... Um, basically what happens is that almost the, the muscles within kangaroos um, start to basically... What's a, what's a good way of describing Atrophy, it? They start to tense up. Yeah, it, it doesn't... like They don't um, die, but they start to tense up and all this... Um, I guess a way of, of describing it is like you've gone for a, a 20k run and then at the end of it you haven't done any stretches. How are you going to feel at the end of that? Um, probably pretty bad. Also, if you think about it in horses, um, they have to be really careful with how far they push horses in a horse race because they can also get this, this so capture myopathy. Is it a, it's a stress response of Pretty some much, sort? Yeah, it's a stress response. So they basically work themselves so hard and work themselves into this state of stress um, that eventually, yeah, their, their muscles start to, um, to tense up and not be able to move and function as well. And so what you eventually see sometimes when you um, stress out kangaroos and other animals so much is that yeah they they start to not be able to move around as easily and their legs um start to to tense up and i'm not describing this in a very <laughs> veterinary no, no, sort you, of way no, but you, um, you are i'm getting this picture yeah. of, of an animal because uh, th th we're really we, what we're talking about here is the the cuddly koala the soft the emotive way that we approach animals and we think of you know animals and but you know, an animal's life is really not like that, you know. Uh, so an antelope lives on the plains of the Serengeti or wherever, mm. and you know, have these visions of this thing gracefully loping across the grass with a setting sun. Actually, it's about to be eaten by another animal, or it's going to be gouged by one of its aggressive uh, mates or males, whatever. Uh, and. It, we have this sort of notion that you know animals are, just live this really, and so lions in a zoo, uh, they don't get fed. Uh, you know, we we would be upset to stick chuck a rabbit in there and let them chase around and eat mm. the, and eat the rabbit or whatever animal. Yep. But, but that's, that's their that's, instinct. But that's yeah. the way that animal would live in the wild. And so what instead we, we chuck at a, a side of beef or something that's already dead yeah. because we don't like the idea that a lion is going to drop and gouge and savage and rip to shreds a living animal. I, I, I'm going to say I don't particularly like that, that thought, but that's, that's, that's nature. Mm. That's Absolutely, nature. yeah. And I guess when, when they're put into a zoo situation, they need to be enriched in, in other ways. If they can't display their normal behaviours... Um, then you've got to still be able to provide them with that behavioural enrichment, which is a really big area in zoos, in, in other ways. So whether it's through other social interaction or whether they actually have to design toys and enclosures for so these animals keep, yeah. so they can still be as normal as possible in a zoo situation. Yeah, oh, we, we went to the Dubbo, the, the Plains, what's it called, the something Plains? Yeah, zoo? Western Plains Western zoo. Plains yeah. Zoo, and they, they put a lot of work into this. So there were the small monkeys, uh, macaques, or, or yeah. really nice, colourful, yeah. striped faces. 
but they don't just put the food in bowls. They were hanging it off little baskets and stuff, and the monkey's got to climb up and stick their arm in a little hole and fish around and, and dig out this stuff. Um, yeah, and it's a, the the you know it's the same with all sorts of animals. Like I'm sure many of our listeners out there who have um, dogs and cats provide enrichment for their animals when i go out um in the morning for work i normally chuck treats onto onto our lawn so it's not like my dog is just able to you know eat all the treats at once actually has to go searching for these treats and and find them and that doesn't work for every dog because some dogs do like to dig it does work in my instance because my dog's not too much of a digger but yeah but it's uh it's the anthropomorphizing error so we tend to trans uh, in fact we do it in general even with other people with ourselves yeah that we assume that our state of mind is similar to the other person's or the animal's state of mind that the things that we think are important are important to them and so on this is really tough stuff now ian i i I know from earlier conversations with you that this is a really touchy area for researchers and you're out of the direct area yourself so you're able or you feel a bit more comfortable talking to us now but that's not the same with some of your your colleagues, people who are working on that. It's been very tough for them, I gather. I guess, like, um, I, I guess the issue is, like, I'm I'm in the I've done research in this area, and I like a lot of people out there, um, was like, well, is there is there a way of being able to manage animals and and wildlife populations, which doesn't actually need to involve culling or shooting or poisons and things like that. Um, And that's why I wanted to do research in this area. Um, But unfortunately, with my five years of research in this area, my actual outcome was no, there isn't actually a better way of doing it. Culling is actually a fairly legitimate way of humanely, and I'm going to use the word humanely, Mm. um, managing wildlife populations. Ethically is another question. I'm not getting into ethics right now. Um, But yeah, if you want to put the word humane out there, then culling isn't necessarily too bad of a thing. But ethically, you could definitely disagree with me. (laughs) No, 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 I don't at all. And... um uh, I think it's uh, it's it's a sad thing that uh, you know we've radically altered the environment of uh, the wildlife of the whole of Australia. You know, human incursion, uh, land clearing. So that that area in Belconnen where they did the culling not that long ago, that's now sort of you know got fences around it. There's cars. They're building a new suburb there. Yeah, yeah. So the humans are encroaching onto the kangaroos. Now, I, 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 my understanding is that kangaroo, uh, its reproduction is controlled largely by its access to water. So they have some sort of natural population controls mm. in them. And, and we, we don't have any dingoes in there either. So yeah, that definitely. would be, that would be a top um, predator. There is um, access to, to food and water can potentially limit reproduction in a way um but kangaroos have this fascinating ability to be able to actually hold an embryo in what we call what we scientists call diapause so they can actually have three sort of various um sections of of pregnancy all at once so they can have an embryo in diapause they can have an embryo in gestation growing and then they can also have a joey in the pouch as well so this is where kangaroos can breed quite quickly because they can have have these embryos on the go um 
going quite quickly. Well, uh, and because we've just bottled them up in this area, there's um, yeah, that not much we can do about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other issue with particularly in Canberra is is the issue that kangaroos have on, on the environment as well. And I know that um, Shane Rattenbury just recently released a, a report showing the effects that kangaroos have on, on reptile species in um, in Canberra. And I think it's called the, the earless lizard. Oh, yes, um, yes. Is, is quite an um, endangered species in Canberra. And if they don't actually manage the kangaroo populations, then another species could go extinct. Well, we, we, so that's the whole, like, which one's more um, right there. Uh, oh, that's, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? So uh, the, ba- the balance is out, basically. Yeah. The, the balance has been upset. And there's another really contentious one, uh, the koalas on Kangaroo Island. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which is terrible because, I mean, I love koala. How can you not love a koala? Yeah. Not not a bear, of course, <laughs> but they were never native on Kangaroo Island. Mm. Interesting choice of names there too, and um, but they are, are shredding the trees, yep. and and for whatever reason, their population controls aren't there, and they have translocated, I believe, or tried to do that, but the numbers are out, and they're going to eat the the trees, they destroy the habitat that they yep. rely on and will starve to death uh, and they'll yeah. starve to death well i'll tell you one thing we Big could do issues yeah <laughs> one thing we could do and to, to throw in a, a personal opinion here we could manage human population growth <laughs> a lot better because a lot of this is driven by the the fundamental upset what you and i and seven what's the number now seven billion people seven point two seven point something billion yeah it's over seven billion on the planet that's uh pretty pretty frightening what we're going to do and on that theme uh we have national science week coming up uh, in august and you're going to be hearing more about us on that a high profile event at the shine dome uh, which include luminaries such as former governor general uh michael jeffrey uh, His Excellency, and Will Stephan, climate researcher, uh, Clive Hamilton also, and Hilary Bambrick, and her research is on how to help pe- communities adapt to climate change. Yeah. And the very fact that we have someone like Hilary doing projects on how we can adapt to climate change says to me, Houston, we've got a problem. Uh, so there you go. That's some plenty of deep thinking, and uh, really looking forward to that event in August on the twenty third at the Shine Dome. Thanks for your company this morning, Ian. Thank you, Rod. And enjoy the rest of your Mother's Day. Plenty more on fuzzy logic. Catch you later.